0: All right, welcome back in to another episode of the Royals Review Radio Podcast. My name is Alex Duvall. I'm your host of this thing. I am joined, as always tonight, by Jeremy Hakaias Greco. Jeremy, the Royals just made another extension uh, today that seems like something that, in my opinion, maybe wasn't totally necessary, but that's something the Royals tend to do, is the thing about gambling and um you know, if you if you're a blackjack player, if you like to bet on football, if you have a model, oh, there goes Jeremy again. So <laughs> with me and you, um, Kevin you, The thing about gambling is, if you have a model, if you have a process, you can't just pick and choose when you use the model because otherwise, your the stats quit working. So if the Royals' plan is to gamble on every other player that they're ever going to have, um, you got to sign them all. So if you're going to give out extensions, you got to you got to play the game. And it seems like they're playing the game. So um i'll introduce kevin real quick kevin goldstein is joining us tonight he is a national writer for the mlb over at fangraphs he also hosts the chin music podcast at fangraphs which can be found anywhere you get your podcast kevin a thank you very much for joining us tonight and not charging us 50 bucks (laughs) um real quick i want to get your thoughts on the
1: michael a taylor extension i mean obviously i mean you're not talking about big money you know it's 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 you know probably going to end up based on his playing time somewhere around 10 million for two years uh you know michael taylor i I think is a valuable piece on a big league roster i just think if he's the kind of guy who's going to be playing every day for you you're probably not a championship level team i think he's a good guy to spot and he's a fantastic fourth outfielder um you know and and frankly that's what he's being paid like like a fantastic fourth outfielder on a good team that's what you would pay is is you know this kind of you know, four to $5 million, depending on how many plate appearances he gets. I mean, you've seen Michael Taylor. Michael Taylor is a, you know, tooled out athlete with a a rough swing, bad approach. Um, He's got enough power. He's going to run into 10 to 15 a year, not going to walk a lot, going to strike out a lot, going to be a low batting average. And he is a uh, special defensive player. Um, There's value to that, that, you know, that that's a, that's a piece of a roster. you know, it's, it's, I, I think you know he's, they're telling us already with with the the price, which I thought was perfectly reasonable. That you know maybe they don't seem as their as an everyday outfielder and a kind of guy where you you know pick his spots and use him as a defensive replacement and, and and good depth for you and you know if as long as that's what you see him as, I think it's a perfectly fine signing.
0: Yeah, I don't disagree with 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 that line of thinking. And, and I saw over at Fangraphs um, again. This is Kevin Goldstein joining us, who is a national writer for Major League Baseball over at Fangraphs. That Michael A. Taylor has accumulated something in the neighborhood of $15 million in value this year as a starting center fielder for the Royals. So if, like you said, the deal is two years, roughly $10 million, don't disagree that in terms of the, the value that he is creating, it's probably not a terrible contract. I think my thing with it is when I, when I think about the moves the Royals have made, I can't really remember a time that the Royals in a year where they thought they could compete, thought they could be a good team in some capacity have given $10 million for even for two seasons. So $5 million for a player that they plan on backing up. We saw it with Chris Owings most recently, bad, you know, bad major league player. If he's your sixth bat, sixth infield bat off the bench, the last bat on the lineup, maybe at one year, I think it was three and a half million dollars. They played Chris Owings every single day. So I think on a normal team that you're looking at this Michael A. Taylor contract and thinking, yeah, I can see it. But the knowing the Royals like I do, unfortunately, I'm looking at this going, that contract totally tells me that their plan is not just to start him on opening day in 2022, but at least in 2022, he is going to be a full-time starter and that if they make a move for a center fielder for their next playoff team, that it's not coming until at least the 2022 offseason and maybe not the 2023 offseason. So if Michael A. Taylor starts next year, do you see that being how big of a damper is that or a, or a, a block in the way of the Royals winning 83, 84 games?
1: Um, I mean, I don't know what is 83, 84 wins really get you, you still go home after the first weekend of October. Um, you know, I, I think this this you know, there's a bit of a devil, you know. Here, you can bring him back. Uh, you know, if you if you need to play him every day, you can. I I, I doubt that. If you walked into Dayton Moore's office today uh, and you saw on his notebook where he's, I'm sure he's got somewhere written down. He's got his 2022 roster and he's got a depth chart and guys drawn in. Um, I'm sure Michael Taylor's in center field, but it's in pencil. I'm sure they'd be willing to look at upgrades there. But they, I mean, they know they have this. They know that they have a baseline there. Um, it's a baseline that definitely they could improve upon, but they at least know they have a baseline there. And, and, you know, when you think about, you know, where the Royals are, um, you know, who else is going to play center. And so, you know, you, it's, it's off a black. It's no longer a black hole for 2022. They've created a baseline. It's Michael Taylor, who like we talked about, he can do some things. He's not a great player, but there's certainly some positives to his game. And at the end of the day, you know, you can spend the offseason trying to find something better and putting Michael Taylor in a role that's much better for him again, which is kind of a spot starter fourth outfield type.
0: We're getting ready to move into a conversation about uh, Fangraph's version of war as it relates to another player. So I'll ask you this really quick as we transition. Michael A. Taylor, in terms of F War, has a top 60, I believe, maybe top 75 at this moment. He's a top 75 F War outfielder in all of Major League Baseball. Which would imply that he should be a starter on a team somewhere, and if you think about the fact that every all, yeah, three I mean, yeah but you said on a
1: team somewhere, but should he be a starter on a team that's competing for the playoffs?
0: No. I would argue. I would argue no.
1: Yeah, um, and the answer is no. Do
0: you, Do you think that an outfield that consists of Andrew Benintendi and Michael A. Taylor? Do the Royals have – because I've, I've said for a long time that the Royals, for me personally, as I evaluate this team, needs to be 500 or damn close next year, if not a little better, just in terms of the, of the way the process is going, the way the rebuild's going. And if they're not 500, it better be because the young guys have played all year, they're going through their lumps, and you can see the playoffs on the distant horizon. And then that, then roughly 2023 is a year – We need to be talking, having a conversation about them being in the playoff race in August. Um, I look at this outfield with Michael A. Taylor and with Andrew Benintendi next year and with Carlos Santana coming back. I don't see this team being any better than they were this year unless they make a major move. I don't think it's probably coming. Is there any chance that Andrew Benintendi bounces back, do you think, and is the player that everybody thought he could be? Or is this kind of an outfield? Like I don't see any upside to anything they're doing in the outfield that isn't Kyle Isbell related.
1: I, I don't see any sort of upside to Kyle Isbell either. I mean, Kyle Isbell in terms of, of talent and what he can do is kind of similar to, to what ben Attendee and Taylor are now. You know, kind of second division starters, fourth outfielders. Um, you know, Kyle Isbell's not any sort of savior there. I, I mean, I think. I mean, I think the ben thing. I, I, you know, I kind of think that ship has sailed as far as his possibility for being a star level player. I think you know, you get to a certain point where, you know, if it's been four years, you know, this is what he is. Like, you know, we can all, you know, we all remember what he looked like when he got drafted very high. Um, we all remember how he looked when he first came up with Boston. And, you know, there was a severe decline. And, you know, there's something, you know, he did get hurt and, and, and kind of the athleticism never returned. The twitch never returned. He regressed both offensively and defensively. And so I, I just don't think, you know, there's any reason I think Andrew Benintendi is going to be an important part of this team next year, you know, and, and you know, if Benintendi and Taylor are playing every day, it's a, it's a well below average outfield. I don't care who you're throwing right right now because you're below average at two positions. And so, um, you know, it's interesting. Like you say, they got to win 82 games next year. And I, I you know, my, my shitty reply to you is, or what? You know, who can't, like, honestly, like not to be a jerk or anything, but, you know, if, if, if 2023 is your, your, big, your big year in your head, and they win 75, 75, and 98. What's the difference between that, that and going to like 75, 83, 90? You know, it's, it's who cares? Like, you know, you, you try to only have this team to win. And I think they could be a better team next year. I think they could do some things better next year. I don't think, you know, an outfield that involves Andrew Benettoni and Michael Taylor are part of that good thing that could happen next year. You know, I think we will see, you know, some young players start to, start to, to, to bubble up to the big leagues. You know, guys that... You know, I know you're excited about, and, you know, especially Bobby Witt Jr. and things like that, um, you know, but they do need to make moves, you know, and and um, and they're not allowed to cry poor. You know, that's just, I, I I don't let any team cry poor. So they need to make moves. They need to sign some players. They need to you know, improve this roster, get to a point where it can do that, you know, but, you know, it, it's always kind of pressured me for the Royals because, I mean, I, like, oh, Royals fans love Andrew Benatendi. I'm like, that's great. He's a lot of fun, but, like, he's just not that good. Like, you need good players. And so, you know, so I, it's, it's, I don't see them competing next year between, you know, what's kind of like a, you know, if they, you know I know we're going to get into pitching later, but they have like pitching depth, but they don't, I don't know what's at the top of that depth. You know, who's that guy who you wake up in the morning and you look at the pitching matchup and you go, oh, we're winning this one. Like, who's that guy? Um, you know, and they got to find who that guy is. And, you know, as, as amazing as that draft has been, I don't think any of those guys are that dude. Uh, You you plop at the front of the rotation to feel good about every five days. And so, you know, it's a, it's a weird team kind of caught in the middle. And it's, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, uh, uh, you know, one of the most respected GMs, I, I, I know like once said to me, like, you know, you're either rebuilding or you're going for it because when you try to do both, you fail at both. Um, And, and to get kind of caught in this 75 to 80 win world can be a tough place. You know, it's kind of like where we've seen the Rockies be lately until they collapse this year. And like, it's like every year, you know, you win 80 and, you know, you kind of feel like you're in it in July. If you get hopped, you're not good enough. And it, it's, you know, under the the way the current rule set is, which is bad. It's a bad rule set. Um, it's tough to be the one of those middle teams. You either have to be kind of rebuilding or going for it.
0: Let's talk about the pitching then real quick. We're going to get into Salvi, but we'll, we can save Salvi here for a little bit the Royals spent a ton of capital of draft capital in 2018 on college arms. They drafted Alec Marsh again in 2019. And then in 2020, they draft Asa Lacey with their first pick. I can totally understand where a team like the Royals would think that investing in young arms is one way to go about it. I just also think that the teams that we've seen be successful in developing and acquiring young arms, they develop them. They don't acquire like the Rays. The Rays don't draft as as well as I can remember. None of these big arms that they've brought up are guys they drafted really early. They developed them. Um, The Padres, the same way. They either developed their arms or they went and got them after they were already established. It seems like the Royals, going after this young pitching early in the draft, it's worked out for them in the regard that they've reached the big leagues, but like you said, I don't know which of these guys is that guy that leads a staff. And so and that, I, I kind of question the strategy in terms of – I have
1: it. no problem with the strategy. Yeah, I have no problem with the strategy, really. I think it's fine. I, I just think – I, I almost think maybe expectations are unrealistic just in the sense that it's not like – other than Lacey, it's not like these are like top five picks, like super high picks. You know, if you get a, a dependable starter when you're picking in the 20s or the second or third round – if you just get a dude who can start in the big leagues, that's a good pick. You've already you've beaten the system. Like, you've done well above average for that pick. If you get a usable big league starter with a second-round pick, you have done way better than most second-round picks. It's not where the studs come from. And, you know, I mean, you know, Shane McClanahan is probably going to start game one for the Rays with a first-round pick. Uh, Shane Boz, who's probably going to start game two at this point, as amazing as that is to say, uh, was a first-round pick. You know, it's it's where you get your studs. And you talk about guys who, even in the first round, when you think about that 2018 draft, these are later first-round picks. And then, like, you know, comp guys and second and third-rounders and, and even a little lower than that, um, you know, to sit there and go, well, I think they're not getting a stud out of that. No one's getting a stud out of that. That's It's almost impossible to get. And so, you know, I just think, you know, it, it's – it's a weird situation We you think about that, this amazing Royals draft class where all these pitchers have gotten to the big leagues and so many have gotten there as starters. It's a, it's a remarkable achievement. Um, and it, but has created a, an incredibly valuable thing for the Rays. And that's pitching depth. Um, you know, the reason the Padres have collapsed this year is because of a lack of pitching depth. You know, that's why this is how, you know, teams die in, in August, September, October is because they lose the, you know, as a lack of depth. And so you, have, you've created this depth and and I think that's what you have to do. It's a huge part of a rebuild is you create depth and then you got to go find your studs. And, those, and you either need to develop those studs or you need to go write a big check, you know, and, 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 and it's one or the other. And, and the smart teams and the best teams do both. You know, there are plenty of studs and you think about the teams you think are really good. Um, you know, you, I'm sure you think the Dodgers are a really good team. Uh, I'm sure you think the Rays are a really good team. You're sure You think the White Sox who are leading your division walked away with this division this year are a really good team. And you think about the great players on that roster, it's a real mix of we we went and got this guy in the draft. We signed him internationally. We scouted this guy up. We developed him throughout. We, we built our star player. And then a huge number of their players are guys. We went and got him. We needed one. You know, we went and made the trade or and or wrote that check. Um, you know, you got to do both. And so. Uh, you know, I think the Ro- I think the Royals two thousand and eighteen draft, I think we can praise it and say it was an amazing draft, and the results have been remarkable. Um, at the same time, we can say they didn't get a stud out of it. You know, I think both can be true.
0: It kind of goes back in, in a similar way to the to the gambling I was talking about with the idea that if you're if your process is going to be drafting college arms early to continue to supply your pitching depth with formerly drafted college arms, you got to do it all the time. So they, and they've stuck to their guns on in that regard. I mean, in 2019, they had the chance to draft a generational type of talents and we'll see what Bobby Witt jr. Becomes in the big leagues, but I don't fault them for that. They 2018 execute their plan to perfection. 2019, they go get Alec Marsh and there's another arm. It took early that I'm, 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 blanking on at the moment. Uh, and then 2020, 2020, they go get Asa Lacey really early. They draft Will Klein a little bit later They've stuck to their guns, and I commend them for that. Um, I do think that, like we've seen with the Braves, that it can be a very tedious line of you either find a way to build yourself a lot of pitching depth, and it can also be a volatile way to, like you said, kind of collapse if it doesn't work out. I have enjoyed immensely watching these arms come up, and I think they just brought up another guy. He was an international signing, Angel Zerpa. He's going to start – uh tomorrow we're recording on Wednesday night he's gonna start tomorrow the Royals have really turned the tide where they used to be probably the worst organization and maybe not the worst they were a very poor organization in developing pitching at least now they've identified hey if we're not having a lot of success drafting and developing these young prep arms let's go get the guys that are a little more stable once they get into the organization and they I mean sure had but had then they did mess
1: with it then they took prep arms this you know just in this year's draft yeah I mean I, they, they took they, they took the players they liked and I think that's fine I, I think it's good not to I think, you know when it comes to the draft or any sort of thing I think diversification is a good thing and um you know I, I, I again like I mean they found they, they they built pitching depth it's a really it's one of the biggest challenges for any team and they've done it through the draft and it's something to be praised even if they don't have a guy who you're gonna sit there and say you know this dude's a number one starter and it's hard like you know it's it's i I know there are 30 technically number one starters you know 30 guys are going to pitch on opening day there's 10 number one starters in baseball you know something like that you don't have one you know and and, and most teams don't and 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 that's okay and and it but you know the, the thing that changes is like you got to go find that guy you know you got to go get that guy either you need to develop him you need to you know try to trade for him before he becomes a one because you think you can make him a one um or you got to write the check you know and and yeah, you know, I think that's one of the things with the Royals is they, you know, they tend not to compete for those bigger guys sometimes when they should, you know, because every team should. Let's talk about the guy that's going to be catching uh, these these
0: arms as they come up. And Salvador Perez, he is he seems to be a, I don't know, I don't know what the word is, um, a very polarizing figure amongst the analytical community and the more of the traditional community, I kind of fall in the middle of both. I can see where like watching him catch on a nightly basis is abysmal in terms of pitch framing. He is, he can make a strike look like a ball better than anyone I've ever seen. I also think sometimes the way that I understand pitch framing and I don't claim to be an expert on how the models work I also think sometimes that the models, the way I understand models for pitch framing lack some context. And it seems like over the course of a season that a, a catcher could lose. Cause I think right now you guys in baseball perspectives, both have them in the range of 12 to 13 framing runs below average. So whatever the average catcher is bringing to the table, Salvia is somewhere between 12 and 13 runs below that mark. And you and be- fan graphs and baseball prospectus both have, both have Salvi in the range of three to three and a half war at the moment, whereas baseball reference has him like at five and a half war. And the way I understand that is I think their pitch framing models are actually similar. They just don't weigh it as heavily in their. They don't weigh it at all.
1: Framing's, framing's not in their war.
0: So they don't, they don't weigh at all. Okay. So kind of, for the Royals fans that are going to sit there and there's a guy that writes for us and he, and he jokes about it, but he kind of goes out of his way to joke about pitch framing, knocking Salvi to the extent that it does. Can you help Royals fans understand why the pitch framing? And again, I, I will admit more than anyone. Salvi is awful at pitch framing. I just sometimes question if it really matters as much as fan graphs and baseball prospectus weigh it in war.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm, I, I don't think it does to be honest with you. Um, you know, I, it's war is a number, be it, you know, fan war or B ref war or, or anyone else's version of, of wins or runs above replacement. Um, I, I'm never a fan of any sort of single number stat. I, I just not a huge, like uh, that guy's a four, that guy's a five. I'm like, man, you get no context of what this guy is. And, and, you know, and I, I do think there is a, a, you know kind of a vocal minority among Royals fans where if you're not willing to say Salvador Perez is having the greatest season of all time by a catcher, you're a bad person and you hate our town and and you don't like our barbecue. I like Kansas City and I love Kansas City barbecue. And um you know, but Salvador Perez is not having one of the best catching years of all time. Uh and but that said I do think you know Salvador Perez does some things that that are never going to be counted in war. And and I mean, the power is incredible, and what he's doing in terms of home runs and, and, and driving and runs has been remarkable. Uh, but he is a flawed player. Um, you know, he's not a great receiver. There is some sort of negative to the framing. I'm not sure it's as big as some of the things that measure it are, but it's there. Um, he does throw quite well, as you know. Um, and and he's kind of, you know, as you know, he's kind of a wild at bat. You know, he, he goes up there, he swings the bat. He's, he's up there to hit. Um, and, and it leads to, you know, an, an, an OBP somewhere in the 320 range, which isn't very good. And so um, I think when you add it all up, he's obviously a well above average catcher, if not an all-star catcher. And I, and I think that's what he is. And, and this is you know, one of the better catchers in baseball. But I also think that there is, you know, and you're speaking from, for someone who spent, you know, eight years as an executive with a team that, you know, still a team that's going to go to the playoffs in the Houston Astros. And have some of the best offices in baseball. And they're playing a catcher every day. Who it's 170. And there's a reason for that. And they're fine with it. It's because of you know Mark, Martin Maldonado brings so much to the game beyond the bat and beyond what maybe you can measure defensively in terms of game management, working with pitchers, and 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 and, and making guys better. And at the same time, you know when I think about other guys who provide that kind of. Um, intangible, intrinsic value that I really care about in a catcher. Salvador Perez is one of those guys who comes to mind. Uh, and so there's a value even beyond, you know, what you're seeing in any sort of of, of war measurement that Sal Perez has. Um, he does a lot of things really well. There's some big holes in his game. When you add it all up, he's one of the better catchers in baseball. I don't think there's any question about it.
0: I was, um, I'm looking really quick. Here it is. So I I think I was, ha- I was having a conversation with somebody about this and they brought up martin maldonado's framing runs when he was in kansas city in 2019 do you think that it's possible that a pitching staff can dictate it what a, f- a catcher's framing metrics look like because like you said martin maldonado usually is in the upper echelon of pitch framers i think that's why the royals brought him in in 2019 when Salvi had tommy john is they knew that if there's anybody who's going to handle a pitching staff really well, it's going to be Martin Maldonado. Yep. And he was incredibly average. He had 0.4 framing runs above average in his time with the Royals. Do you think that it's possible that in the Royals, by all accounts, kind of like we talked about, especially early in the season, pitching staff was bad. It was really, really bad early on. Mm-hmm. Do you think that swings in the favor? Now, obviously, uh, negative 13, yeah. you're kind of – in a, yeah,
1: you know, yeah, he's he's. I think Perez is, you know, by the eyesight, which is, you know, is just what I trust defensively more than the numbers. Often is is a is a rough receiver, but not a disaster. And so, you know, you're in this world where, you know, I, I I'd rather say that he's like, you know, he's a below average receiver. He's not a disaster, and and but not worry about kind of the the framing measurements, which I think are flawed. And I think almost every defensive metric in the world is flawed. Um, but you know, to get back to your question, absolutely. Um, there's definitely a correlation between framing and quality of pitching. And that's one of the problems with framing. Um, there's also you know, a correlation between framing and good game calling, to be honest with you. Um, and, and what kinds of pitchers. Like, I, you, know, you can make a, a guy look like a great framer if, if you're talking about a dude who's going to throw 85% fastballs um, you know, and, and things like that. And so you know, when you're talking about the Royals, it's a young pitching group. Um, what is a common factor in young pitching that you see in percent of young pitchers command issues? You know, it's not about strike throwing anymore in the big leagues. That's not, it's not, that's not what's about. If you get to the big leagues, you better throw strikes. It's now about locating within the zone. Um, and that's where those guys struggle and they have a lot to learn. And so, you know, you're in the situation where it's absolutely part of it is, is these kind of young pitchers can make a catcher look like a worse catcher. Um, there's no question about it. And I think that's something we're definitely seeing in Salvador Perez, who just hit a home run, by the way. Did he really? Yeah, it just looks so exactly. Like so
0: that's 40. I don't have the game on. If I have the game on, I can't I can't think and watch baseball. <laughs> so that's 48. So for those of you listening, obviously we're recording in the middle of Salvi tying the franchise record for, for home runs in a season. Um, Kevin, I want to get your opinion on because it's gonna come up. Salvador Perez, I think at this point we can probably definitively say he's going to hit 300 home runs. And when you count up all the accolades, like there's a radio host in Kansas City who always talks about the Wikipedia page argument. You pull up a player's Wikipedia page, you look at all the awards and all the stuff they've accomplished in their career, and you can get a really good idea if they have a Hall of Fame argument or not. Salvador Perez's Wikipedia page, by the time he's done playing baseball, is going to match up really well with every other hall of fame catcher. And I know there's going to be two sides to this. There's going to be one side that says he's one of four or five catchers to ever hit 300 home runs. He's one of a few catchers to ever win this many gold gloves and this many silver sluggers and start this many all-star games and win an all world series MVP. When you're weighing a hall of fame argument, how much of the on base and the overall created value weighs into just arguing against the accolades that no not no but very few other catchers are going to be able to boast
1: um i mean you're making a, a hell of an assumption you know right now just because the fact that he's you know i guess he's what at 200 or so home runs and um you know like 1200 hits and um you know i don't know if he's ever gotten anything close to, i'm sure he's never got anything close to like a top 10 mvp he's been to plenty of all-star games um I mean, I can go on a rant here if you want. You're probably going to hate me for it, but I'm going to do oh, it no. anyway. Go for it. I don't care if he gets in the Hall of Fame or not. I don't. It doesn't mean, and, and it's not. The, I, I, you know, I, I hope he gets to the Hall of Fame because you know what? I bet it'll make his day. I bet I'll have a wonderful time. It'll be super happy. I hope he gets the Hall of Fame. I hope Andrew Benintendi gets the Hall of Fame because I think he'll be really happy about that too. But like, it's, it's, it's all of this stuff. Like, you know, will he be a Hall of Famer? Um, who's going to win the MVP this year? I don't care. You know, I, the, my job is to evaluate players, and whether you know a bunch of writers decide a guy's in the Hall of Fame, or a bunch of writers decide a guy wins a Cy Young, or a bunch of writers decide a guy's the MVP, doesn't move the needle for me at all As far as how I feel about the player and how the, I feel about the player's value. So I honestly don't care. Like I'm super happy. I I hope he gets four hundred home runs. Like I guess easy. but I don't. I don't care. I, I don't think there's a like Willie or not. I don't care. It means nothing to me. I mean, I don't. I've never understood anyone's obsession with awards if you are go for it man live your life have a good time enjoy it you know but it just you know my world is very much how good is this player you know and and nothing about that very you think about that very right hand column on a on a guy's you know baseball reference page it shows the all-stars and the golden gloves and the mvps and all stuff. it doesn't tell me how good he is not one bit there's nothing about it tells me how good he was. Uh, and so I just, you know, I know I'm in the minority. I know I'm, I perfectly fine having a great time on my little Island of one here. but like, I just never understood like the massive interest and there's already, you know, it's, it's whatever it's the end of September and there's already 8 million arguments on Twitter about who should win the American league MVP. I'm just like, like, why do you care? I just don't care. Like if, if, Oh, wins it. That'd be awesome. If Vlad Guerrero wins it, fantastic. We're super happy for him. He's a great kid. Yeah. I just, it, but it doesn't change how I feel about either player in terms of how good they are, how valuable they are. So like, why do you get worked up about it?
0: It's funny you say that I was watching um, an interview. In fact, so I was teaching a history class and I showed my kids an interview. It was Harold Reynolds on MLB network interviewing. Oh man. Is his name Larry Lester? I think his name is Larry Lester. He works at the Negro Leagues Museum here in Kansas City. And Mr. Lester was basically explaining how he went back. And as a kid, he heard all the stories of the Negro League players. And so when he got a job, he went back and he dug up all these old box scores from like the Kansas City Call, um, the, the uh, all these other newspapers, right, and digging up box scores to figure out how many home runs did Josh Gibson really hit, how, uh-huh. well, how good a pitcher was Satchel Paige really. And, and, and like you talked about, it's not just the stories, but it seems like baseball specifically, for the most part, is infatuated with the records and with the stats and with those awards and stuff like that. And so I, I kind of see what you're saying, like, you know, in terms of, like, player evaluation. But it seems like baseball specifically is so caught up in that, which is why I think, you know, and if you're talking about a Hall of Fame argument, I do think that, you know, there's there are people who – either don't care or don't think that Salvi should be or think he's a lock or whatever, but it's those records. It's those things that for whatever reason, baseball people have always cared about in a way that other sports sports don't really seem to focus on.
1: Well, I think much of that's because it's just the, the completely individual individual individualistic aspect of the game in the sense that, and, and I'm telling you something who knows nothing about football. I can name, I don't know eight NFL players, maybe if you, um, but you know, I, 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 know enough that, you know, a really good offensive line can make a mediocre running back look great. Um, you know, a, a great point guard can, can make a player who can shoot well, look great. Um, you know, a great setup, you know, guy who passes well in hockey can, can make a goal scorer look a lot better. Um, you know, when a player is at the plate, nobody on his team can do a damn thing to help him. You know it's a completely it is a sport of individual performances that that you have to that add up to it to some of the whole but you know the 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 whole concept of uh, you know playing like a team is is you know is the least important to baseball you know there's absolutely you know ground ball in the hole and Nicky lopez michael taylor can't do a damn thing i even back him up in case it gets through you know but that's it like and there's no there's there's no assisting there's no helping it's it's a it's the most individual of all the sports and i, I think that's why you know, we get worked up about the numbers because the numbers are um, the most accurate in terms of, uh, compared to other sports in, ter- in terms of gathering what the player did because no one helped them, you know, unless you're talking, you know, individual stats. Obviously, you know, teams are helping, you know, teams can help in terms like, you know, columns like runs and RBIs, you know, because you got to have someone drive you in or you got to have someone on base to drive in, um, but you know no one can help you at a double, nobody. You know, and so I, I, so I think that's really the main reason for that.
0: The Astros may beg to differ a little bit. <laughs> You're talking about player valuations as it relates to Salvi. So let's talk about MJ Melendez for a quick second. Sure. I think there is a case to be made that MJ Melendez could be the Royals' best defensive option behind the plate as it relates to be outside of, like, Cam Gallagher, but Cam Gallagher's not going to start every game if you're talking about MJ and Salvi, I think MJ has a case of maybe being a better defensive option than Salvi. So if you're the Royals and you move Salvador Perez to a part-time role between first base DH and catcher, he's going to lose a ton of his value immediately. So in terms of keeping Salvador Perez's value, what it is, he's got to be behind the plate. MJ Melendez might be the better defensive option though. He's worked with these younger pitchers more and he could probably provide you some value offensively next year. I'm kind of curious myself as to what I think the Royals should do behind the plate next year, whether it's Salvi catches 100 games, MJ catches 60, and they rotate them between the DH spots somehow. I don't really know what that should look like, but A, do you think there is a chance that MJ could be a better defensive option, and B, how how do you handle that, or what's the best way to handle that in terms of increasing the most value possible when you have two catchers like that?
1: But I think there's definitely a chance he's the better defensive option. He's a, he's a fantastic defensive player. Um, you know, I've followed him. I saw, I saw MJ in high school in his draft year and, you know, down in Florida and then, and, and he was a fantastic defender back then. One of the, one of the better high school defensive catchers I've seen. And, and, you know, he can really throw, he's just, you know, especially mobile back there. His hands work very, very well. He's he's a, he is a plus or a better defender. Um, at the same time, Salvador Perez is to face the franchise and is signed through 2025 um that's four more years that's the which is you know you could mess around next year and keep Salve as your star and let mj kind of toil away and then get him get him a year at AAA and maybe call him september um if you want to talk about radical we talked about how you got to go find your studs um maybe it's time to see what you get for mj on the market maybe if you can find that stud it's the right move to make because you have salvador perez as your catcher
0: I was thinking about that as well. And I think a lot of the Royals fans have thought about that. The the idea of trading MJ Melendez. For me personally, I run the the account I reached out to you on is a minor league focused blog mm-hmm. the Royals. We started our our website the year the the month a week after MJ was drafted. So sure. I think there's a lot of Royals fans that are attached, but I also think that you're right. What kind of value could Royals fans expect to get like if you so
1: Oh, I think they get. I think get some interesting stuff. I mean, you're talking about, you know, the the the, the markets have changed dramatically. Um, you know, even in, in in my time with the Ashes, which was from 2012 to 2019, um, you know, it went from you know, we think about trades that that, that the team made that I was involved in and and, and was talking to other teams with. It really kind of went from you know, early in my tenure to like here's two or three guys that we just won't talk about in our farm system. You know, top two or three guys. Um, now it's like just stay out of our top 10 and so you know to get a you know not just a, a guy who's you know a premium prospect i think mj Melenders would be the number one prospect in plenty of systems um that, that don't have bobby witt jr run around and so um you know to be able to get someone's number one uh you know there's the you know obviously one thing that dictates value is market scarcity and it's a real scarcity to even have you know a player like that available um, you know, a young catcher who looks like a, a, a plus performer both offensively and defensively. I think they could get something really, really good for him, and, and and maybe even more importantly, some things plural, uh, really, really good for him. Who could, um, you know, get you to uh, where you where you're talking about them being in 2023. And so, I, I think it's certainly something. Um, you know, I, I hate to say like you need to do it as much as I think you just need to explore it and see if it, if you find something that makes sense. And sometimes there is and sometimes there isn't. You know, it, it happens every trade deadline. Um, you know, a great example is is you know, Jose Berrios, who's pitching very well for the Blue Jays tonight. Um, you know, the twins didn't plan on trading him, but they at least explored it and they were kind of surprised at how robust the market was. They ended up finding a deal they liked. Um, but there are tons of players thrown out this summer that teams do the same thing as boring. them. That's nah, not enough. Let's not, let's not do anything. Um, so I think, but I do think, you know, the rarity of getting something like that uh, is, I think they'd get a ton for them. I, I think it's something they should at least uh, be willing to pick up the phone when the team's call on them.
0: So in the past, Will Myers was obviously good enough to be the centerpiece for James Shields. Right. Sean Mania was obviously good enough to be the centerpiece for Ben Zobrist so <laughs> rental, a little bit different. Is MJ Melendez good enough to be the centerpiece of a player the same same value as James Shields?
1: Oh, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, okay. you, you should be able to get a guy who can impact your big league roster for him. I think so.
0: There's one more player I want to ask you about, and there's a more baseball-centric um, question that we'll get to before we wrap things up. Vinny Pasquantino, A first baseman for the Royals. I, yeah. I tried to warn everybody before the year started. That if there, I said something along the lines of if there's a 10% chance that Nick Prado rebounds and is a top 100 prospect again, there's also a 10% chance that by the end of the year, we're talking about Vinny Pasquantino being this team's first baseman of the future. Now, ironically, both of those things kind of hit. Nick Prado has been outstanding. Yeah. Uh, Vinny Pasquantino has been equally as outstanding. He's just a little bit older at a lower level. Do you have any thoughts on Vinny P? Have you seen him at all? I mean,
1: what is he doing? Yeah, I mean, he's I don't know if you have you seen him? Yeah. Yeah, large human being first of all. That's the first thing that kind of strikes you. This is a this is it's a big dude. Um I think the most interesting thing about him and for me when I see him is just that um you know, when you just when you see like you know like the physicality of a player. Like when you just you know there he is. I've never seen this guy before, which happens all the time in the minors, right? You've read about him. There he is. I'm looking at him. You, you make assumptions. I know what that is, right? This is a, I'm 6'4", 250, first baseman. Um, dude's like, I bet this dude's like a bopper and then, you know, power over hit. Um, the thing that really strikes me about Vinny is the contact rate. Um, he doesn't strike out. Like, like Nick Prado is what you expect. Like, Nick Prado hits bombs. Nick Prado whiffs. Like, that's, we know what he is, right? He's up there to hit a home run, right? We know this. And so... Um, there's something about Vinny where like the power's good. Like I, it's not, it's not in in Prado's category. He's not, you know, some Jorge Soler 460 foot bomb dude. Um, he's got enough power, but he can really hit. Like there's there's a feel for contact there that is more the kind of thing you'd associate with, you know, a, a kind of a five ten second baseman who doesn't whiff a lot. Like he he covers a lot of the plate. Um, there's just a knack for getting the bound the ball. I think he's got really good hand eye coordination, um, but it's coming in this, you know, power forward package. And so all of a sudden he becomes very, very interesting. And, and, and I think he's, you know, I think you got to give some credit to the Royals for, you know, getting his, his contact to where it is. I'm sure he's worked hard at it. Um, and so he's become an interesting prospect. Like you said, he's a little older. Um, he's in double a. He's also a first baseman and, you know, first base prospects are tough. It's really tough. You know, if you're going to be a first base prospect prospect and you're really going to matter, like you got to be able to look at that dude and go, that dude hits three, four, five, in an everyday good big league lineup, or he's really not much of a first base prospect because that's what first basemans are supposed to do. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, the best way to put it is kind of the jury's still out, but all the indicating, all the indication errors are going in the right direction.
0: I, when he got drafted, they bring him in, he goes to Burlington, and I think the observation I made was this guy, sort of like you said, he's a big guy that you would look for a lot of power, but more or less uses his hands to be a contact-oriented swing and then lets his body drive natural power um he's a guy we've had on our podcast a few times he's a great human being and i know royals fans i have tried to drive the boat i have tried to get everybody on board um but i'm glad to hear you have some similar thoughts that he could you know he could potentially be a big league capable bat in some capacity we're going to take an ad break really quick we'll come on the other side of the break we're going to talk about the idea of a downtown ballpark stay tuned we'll be right back all right uh kevin the big talk around the Royals right now, as it relates to kind of what the future of this organization looks like with John Sherman at the helm is the idea that the Royals can be moving downtown. Jeremy was with us earlier. We lost him on the, we lost his internet, but Jeremy and I on the last podcast for Royals view radio kind of talked about the idea of does a publicly funded stadium ever produce enough money in taxes in revenue and whatever to pay Kansas city back for investing in the stadium. I said it seems like it could Jeremy said he didn't think it did do you have any data that would suggest if Kansas City Missouri funds a publicly funds a major league baseball stadium then some way that stadium will financially not just pay it back in memories and good feelings but financially pay the city back at some point
1: no it will it will not it's a boondoggle it's a complete boondoggle um, Can first it get all, close? no. Every team should pay for its own stadium, period, period. You know, they don't. And they basically use politics to put pressure on things. And that's the thing. It's a a, a completely political issue in the sense that, um, you know, if if you are the mayor of Kansas City or you are, I don't know what the government structure there is, you are an alderman or a city councilman or whatever, um, and you don't give them the ballpark, you're the asshole who made the royals leave. That's why they do it. They're not gonna make a penny off of it. No, they're, they're it's, it's a losing proposition. They just do it because it's politically sound because they don't want to be the guy or the gal whose actions led to the team moving somewhere else. That's why they do it. It's, 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 we're seeing it in action right now in Oakland, California with the A's um, where they are trying to set up something, you know, a situation that is actually makes sense financially for the city of Oakland. That's what the city of Oakland's trying to do. You know, and, and the team is trying to soak every penny out of them so they don't have to pay for it. Because, you know, the, it's, you know, a baseball team is not a public trust. You know, and I understand, obviously, it, it, you know, the first two words in Kansas City Royals are Kansas City. And it feels like that. And it feels like they are part of the city. Um, and, I, and we all understand why. Um, you know, in the you you walk around, you see people in Royals uniforms, and so it's Kansas City right there. It's a private company, it's a private for-profit company, you know, and, and you're just going to build them a stadium. Why don't shouldn't they build the stadium? First of all, they have the money. They really do. You know, there's no such thing as a small market team. That's that's a complete. You know, that's, that's just marketing and PR. There's no such thing as a small market team. Every major league baseball team, I don't care who the Dodgers or the Rays, are making tons and tons of money. And so there's no need for a city to build their stadium. But at the same time, you do get to the point where, you know, the team itself is going to go where someone will build them a stadium and pay for it. They're not going to pay for the stadium, period. And so you can either pay for the stadium and, and save political face, But it's a losing i mean in in pure terms of pure business a losing venture for the city in terms of just money um you know i think what you get is you know the revenue you talked about as far as you know goodwill and posi vibes you know that's what you get um but it's you know in terms of making money for the city no they don't stadiums do not make money for the city
0: so even so let's say the the stadium because of the 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 feeling around here is that again if if missouri doesn't want to pay for it kansas will and kansas will get the team the way I, I I assume this was a fact. I don't really remember where I've heard it now, but I was under the impression for a long time this was a fact that when Mike Trout comes to play in Kansas City, that his ta- income tax on his paycheck is paid in Kansas City, Missouri. Correct. Okay, so
1: state it's the sta- state. He does pay state tax. Missouri state taxes for his income earned in the state of Missouri. Yes. Okay,
0: so the way that I. I, I guess kind of the theory I developed was all these teams come in, their players pay tax revenue in the state of Missouri. They, you know, there there's other things, there's other things drawing business here. I guess in my head, I was thinking, okay, I can see where you could start to maybe get some of that money back, but you're, yes. there's no shot you could, ever you, could no, ever,
1: you no you get some back, but you, there's no way you, you don't make money off of it. You still lose. Um, you know, especially it depends on, like you know, stadiums, you know, I I don't know if you own a house or not. Do you own a house? Yes. Okay. So after you bought that house, did you never spend any money on it again? Were you done? No. That's no. Certainly. Believe me, I just spent twenty five hundred bucks to get some siding fixed inside of my house. Um. And so you know, there the, the 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 maintenance of a sports stadium is amazing. It's remarkable. It's huge. Think about biggest stadium is. Think how big bigger house is. Um. Yeah, and even just the little things i just i remember just one day it always kind of struck me when i worked for the astros was you know obviously the astros had uh, a retractable roof on most days that roof was closed because houston's gets hot as hell um and one game one day one game close the roof and you turn the air on the air conditioning to have the air conditioning on for one day and that seems around 25 grand and so you know it's it's you're talking about these huge scaled numbers and yes they would get the state gets taxes but that's the thing now you're talking about kansas city paying for the stadium right mike truck comes to town gets three days of, of of his income that's subject to state tax that's not subject to kansas city tax that's subject to Kansas. that's subject to the state of missouri tax you know it, and so they're not getting a dime out of that
0: that makes sense that makes way more sense than maybe i had
1: you know, yeah. and, and
0: again, it, so, yeah, about...
1: it's fun because then base, I mean, baseball players get like, you know, end up at the end of the year. They have like, you know, 20 state level W2s. It's a really good time. Get I accounting. actually <laughs> can't imagine how all that, how all that it's would a, it's a uh, You know, look, when you're making millions of dollars a year, you can afford a That's
0: probably fair, too. Yeah. Um, Kevin, last question for you um, before we get you out of here. 2022 in Kansas City um, is going to should be a lot of fun. 2023 should be more competitive if you had to guess gun to your head you're forced to guess um, the next time that the Kansas City Royals make the playoffs not just sniff not just look but a team that we can look at the beginning of the season and go this team if they don't make the playoffs it will be considered a failed season is in win
1: I would say I mean I don't next year's a no I think 2023 would be their first time where you go. They have a chance if some things break right. Um, and, and then maybe 24 is the time where you're going. And this this seems lined up pretty well. Um, so I, I think 2024, I think they'll be good in 2023. Um, but 2022 you know, is going to be another um, learning year for a lot of people. Um, but you get to watch Bobby Wood Jr. Hopefully and that'll be a good time. I, I lied.
0: I do have one more question for you. Do you have, is there an underrated prospect in this system that we haven't talked about that you're a big fan of?
1: Ben Hernandez. Ben Hernandez and Will Klein would be the two guys I'd name. Uh, I'm telling you, this is a guy sitting in Illinois and two guys who did their amateur work in Illinois. Um, so I saw them. Ben Hernandez is a great, uh, good Chicago kid with um, maybe the best changeup I've ever seen in a high school arm. period. Like and, and you know, and he needs it. Like it's, it's clearly his best pitch. Um, but he's he's a lot of fun. Will Klein was a dude I loved in the draft, and 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 um, you know, the Astros really wanted to take him, and the the Royals kind of picked their pocket when they're getting ready to. Um, big kid, real power stuff. With, with it's not just the velocity; it's excellent um, pitch shapes as well. and You can talk about some of the more underlying metrics, and you know, you saw his strikeout rate this year; it's incredible. Um, like I, Will Klein, I'm still not sure. you know i think we're still figuring out as as an industry i'm sure the royals are still figuring out if he's a starter reliever in the end um but it's big league stuff for sure outstanding we're big those those, those are my two goods i'm a big will klein fan as well um if you ever he was on on
0: our minor league podcast last night it'll be a really good yeah good kid good kid good dude huge love watching him kevin thank you so much for joining us and for not charging us $50 to come do so. I will, for anybody, it's, li- it's 75, the, right? 75. That's right. <laughs> I'll, um for anybody listening to this, I will, I will go find the original tweet where some guy I'll find it. I'll link it that way. You guys can understand the, I guess the joke of it, Kevin, thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your evening for everybody listening. Hopefully Jeremy and I will be back next week. I don't know what happened to Jeremy's internet. So Jeremy was with us for about 30 seconds this evening and then he bugged out on us so we'll get Jeremy back again next week Kevin thank you very much and for those of you listening thank you we'll be back real soon